I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half as Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, here we are. Apologies for last week's episode. Quality of sound, not our best. You want to get into it? Yeah, so just as a recap, um, we've split what was one section up into two. So last week we covered Baron and Luthien. This week we are covering the Tale of Turin. And this is William's absolute favorite character and story in all of the Silmarillion. Yeah, I love Turin, I feel like, in the same way that you love Feanor. Um, (laughs) Obviously, neither of us goes for, like, the... um, The good guys? The good guys. I mean, I don't know. Like, I love me some Sam and Aragorn. I think they're the best of Lord of the Rings. But um, I also love me these characters like Feanor, Turin, Boromir. Complicated guys. I just think people give Tolkien a bit too much of a hard time for being so black and white when he's got these amazing gray characters that are just like, and and I don't know, I think even Tolkien fans on behalf of Tolkien tend to like denigrate these characters and be like, oh, like, oh, this character gave in so much to their pride or whatever. And I think even Tolkien himself is like allowing that this is within all of us. It's not like that this guy was in a special asshole. No, it's just that, uh, yeah, these are the sins that we all kind of carry and we're all um, susceptible to. Yeah. And so that and they're not even, you know, not like all these guys did totally bad things. It's like they're also heroes. It's just a lot less black and white, a lot more gray than I feel like he gets credit for. And I don't think we get any more better example of it than uh, these chapters. Yeah, I don't want to get too too far into my analysis before we kind of do a quick recap. Uh, yeah, let's get into the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Kind of like the last half episode we did, there is this great battle and this great victory of Morgoth, followed by one of his Tolkien's great tales. Baron and Luthien, you know, is obviously the first really great one. And then you got the Tale of Turin and the Fall of Gondolin. And I would even consider the Voyage of Eärendil being part of the Fall of Gondolin. So those three are really those um, core parts of Tolkien's mythology Mm -hmm. in the Silmarillion. But we start off with the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. And yet again, this is just another massive win for Morgoth where the good guys get totally fucked over. In the Battle of Sudden Flame, at least no elf kingdoms fell or anything. It was just kind of more like Morgoth broke the siege and now his troops could go kind of out into Beleriand Mm -hmm. and stuff. And Sauron had his watchtower. Um, but now with this one, we get the... And in the last one, we also got the death of Fingolfin. And in this battle, we get the death of his son, Fingon, who became the new High King. Right. Um, pretty brutal. Um, Gothmog cleaves his head with an axe, and then they beat his body into the mud with maces. Yeah. So that sucks. And Mithras and all the other uh, eastern forces of the Sons of Feanor are just driven away. But really, kind of the uh, one thing marring Morgoth's victory here is the escape of Turgon and the Elves of Gondolin. Right. Because he's been wanting to know, where are they? And there are three now um, hidden elf kingdoms. There's Gondolin, there's Doriath, and there's Nargothrond. And uh, Turgon is now the High King after the death of his brother. So we get this pretty epic last stand of Hurin and Huor 
who we, as we know from earlier chapters, were friends of King Turgon. Right. And the men of Dor Loman. And I don't know, I've always thought of this last stand of the men of the House of Hador as like, this is the 300 of Middle Earth. <laughs> this is the Battle of Thermopylae. Like they're the small force against legions of Morgoth's army. And they're holding this very narrow pass so that Turgon's forces can escape. And they all pretty much fight to the last man. And the last man is Hurin, facing down hordes of Morgoth's army. I think this is one of the most epic last stands that I've ever personally read. They say that Hurin, each time that he slew one of the trolls of Gothmog's guard, he cried out, like an elvish, day shall come again. And Tolkien says 70 times he uttered that cry. Yeah. As opposed to just saying, he slew 70 trolls. Right. Or he slew 70 enemies or whatever. I'm just like, I don't know, I can just picture this one man facing out an entire army and just... They say that even the orcs couldn't grab a hold of him because, like, their arms were, like, clinging to him even after he hewed them from their bodies. Yeah. Hurin is, I mean, and Tolkien describes him, the mightiest warrior of mortal men. But he's also the most faithful because he's captured alive and brought back to Morgoth and interrogated and questioned about Turgon and the elves of Gondolin because Morgoth knows that somehow, like, from Gondolin, my end shall come. And we've heard a lot of prophecies like this before throughout the book about Gondolin and that it has a purpose in this grander story. So not only will Hurin not reveal the location of Gondolin and Turgon, but he also openly mocks Morgoth to his face. And we get one of the most extreme examples of the pettiness of evil, which is that Morgoth just curses his whole family. Yeah. Which sounds silly, but like it has a big impact. Yeah, and he's just basically like, they're going to like die cursing both life and death. Yeah. And so that leads us right into the story of Turin, the son of Hurin, and it's a downer. It's a big downer. So since the men of Dor Loman all die, uh, Morgoth sends his loyal mortals to take over Turin's homeland. And they enslave pretty much all the rest of the people, the women, the children, the elderly, the disabled, and uh, Turin is sent away to Thingol, um, who has now changed his opinion of men after yeah, Baron. He's and, pretty open to them. Yeah, and he takes uh, he takes Turin to be his foster son, actually, in the place of Hurin, which is reminiscent of Elrond taking Aragorn to be his foster son. Turin accidentally kills a man, becomes an outlaw. He's captured. His best friend tries to rescue him, actually kills his best friend, comes to Nargothrond, Glaurung the dragon comes against them. He actually brings about the fall of Nargothrond. Goes into hiding in the woods. Accidentally falls in love with his sister. He kills the dragon, but then the truth comes out. And they both end up killing themselves. Nice. It's pretty classic uh, tragedy. Yeah. Just like all these characters, like, who if they were just... If not for this one character flaw, they could have had the full story, made better decisions, but everything just kind of uh, spins out of control. Yeah, this story is a real snowball yeah. where just every decision that Turin makes kind of in, like compounds until it it's really bad. And not just Turin, but also his mother and his sister. Yeah. Um, it's like the whole family is cursed. Right. So, um, but we're just kind of following Turin as the protagonist. But 
I'll, you know, although I'm not sure if you could call him a protagonist, um, just kind of a victim, just a constant a character. <laughs> yeah, just a constant victim slash instigator. Yeah. Okay. So let's start off. Tell me why this is your favorite character and your favorite story. Well, again, kind of like with Baron and Luthien, um, I think if you're only reading the Silmarillion, you're getting the most summarized version of all this. In the past, when I've read the Silmarillion and I get to the Turin chapter, I put it down and I pick up the Children of Hurin, which is the expanded novel version of this tale. And so it's been a while since I've actually read this, and I was surprised to realize how bare bones it really is. Yeah. And how much characterization I feel like is lacking here with Turin. But if you read the Children of Hurin, I think it's important to note that out of all of Tolkien's characters in his legendarium, this is the most fleshed out. We see him from his birth all the way to his death. It's the longest chapter, as far as I can tell. Well, yeah. So, so and, far, at least. And I'm just talking about the novel. Um not just the chapter, oh, yeah. but um, the, the the book itself goes into Turin's entire life. And we don't get that with Frodo. We don't get that with Sam. They only come into the story when they're at the relevant kind of age of yeah. the quest of the War of the Ring. Yeah. Same with Aragorn. I mean, Aragorn, maybe in the tale of Aragorn, we see a little bit more about him. But still, that's just a few pages in, a, in an appendix as opposed to an entire novel. I can't recommend enough people to read The Children of Hurin while they're reading this chapter, just like with uh, Baron and Luthien, to read the poem The Lay of Lathian while you're reading it. But Turin is just, um, I think he's very misunderstood. He has two defining traits of which I feel like only one is talked about, and that is pride and pity. Pride, you know, as we've seen in a lot of Tolkien stories, from Boromir to Thorin, um, is just a recurrent uh, theme and fall of a lot of these people that otherwise could have been great heroes. Right. Um, but I think with Turin, what's more apparent is his sense of uh, pity and mercy for those who can't really stand up and fight for themselves. And I think this is born out of the fact that at, when he was like eight years old, invaders came into his land and just oppressed all the people. All the you know men went away, fought, and they died except for his father who was captured. Um, and so he just had to watch the most vulnerable of his people who he would now be king of and like the Lord of, um, his inheritance is robbed of him and he just has to watch his people be enslaved until he's sent away to Thingol. And this, I think drives the rest of his life and why he is so just anytime I see any servant of Morgoth, I kill. He's so narrow-minded and uh, focused on just that. But I think it's understandable when you realize it's coming not just of a place of hatred, but of um, pity for the people that have to suffer under that. It's very interesting that you say that like a lot of people have a negative view of Turin. I'm not, you know, involved in kind of like Tolkien conversations on the internet or anything mm -hmm. like that. I, I'm not really part of the fandom in that way. But even having not read The Children of Hurin and, and having just read this chapter in The Silmarillion, I I don't find him... I mean, I find him a little brash and rash and mm. silly. And ultimately, that leads to some problems, some big problems. But I think what's very unique about this story, for me, this tale takes all of the kind of fables and moralistic outlines that we've experienced so far in the Silmarillion 
And it really doesn't abide by those same rules. It's easy to look at any one action that Turin takes in the story and say, like, that wasn't the best reaction. But none of those actions individually, like, lead him to his doom. Yeah, it's the culmination of all of them. And this doom isn't something he, like, deserves. I guess let's compare him to other characters that have tragic flaws uh, in this. So, like, Feanor. Feanor, like, does a lot of cool things, and then he does a ton of bad things. And therefore, he is trapped in the halls of Mandos for, like, ever, you know? And it's kind of this very clear, like, you fucked up. You have to suffer in some way. And well, like your fuck up will exponentially continue throughout the generations. Right. So like you're going to have to suffer for yeah, the generations. Yeah, like you're, you're going to suffer for that. Um, um, a character like Aeol, who like isn't necessarily redeemable in any way, but we see this clear like he, he goes into Gondolin and he acts like a fucking jerk and then he's killed immediately for it. There's sort of like this swift justice of, of everything. Uh, conversely, our good characters like Baron and Luthien, they are really great and do a lot of really good things that are generally good for the greater world, like kind of proving to everyone else that Morgoth isn't, his power isn't absolute yeah. and he can be defeated that this quest to reclaim the Silmarils isn't hopeless. No. They just got back one of the three. Right, so. exactly. So so they, they bring this like level of, oh, okay, we can do this back to the playing field. Um, and for that, they are rewarded with a second chance at life together. Right. Um, this story isn't like that at all. This story is much more Grecian- and Roman and it's morality slash like the way destiny plays into it. Yeah. And I think that's also just because of the fact that I think this story was more blatantly inspired by other myths and tales. Totally. Others, others were much more like from Tolkien's own imagination. Uh, there's, I think the biggest one is there's this finished tale of, uh, this one character, uh, I think it's pronounced Calervo. Where, you know, he's like a prince of this land who his, I think his father either has died or captured when he's young. His lands are invaded. Everyone's enslaved. He ends up marrying his sister Mm -hmm. accidentally. I mean, it's obviously very inspired by that. And then Tolkien also, there's a quote where he talks about other inspirations for this. And he's like, and I'm not sure for those people that like to know this sort of thing. He's like, I I don't particularly think it's very useful to know this. Um, But it's awesome information. What is he talking about? I I know exactly. Yeah. Uh, But he said, you know, uh, little bits of like Oedipus and Hamlet came into this. Totally. um, Which you can definitely see. Yeah. There, there's definitely, I mean, other than it being his sister and not his mom, it is almost exactly the story of Oedipus Rex. So yeah. And um, and I think it's interesting that you said that there's some like Grecian uh, inspiration there. Um, I mean, there's obviously Oedipus, but just the way the children of Huron is written, not this tale in the Silmarillion. Um, it's so dialogue driven. It almost reminds me of a play. Yeah. Um, well, and it's interesting. You mentioned Hamlet. It's very Shakespeare almost. Yeah. Um, as someone who has not done an insignificant amount of thinking about Hamlet, um, it's one of my, I think it's probably my favorite Shakespearean tragedy. There's a lot of Oedipal structures in Hamlet 
He's so angry at his mother. Um, and all of that rage kind of ends up being cast onto Ophelia. Uh, she's like a stand in for his mother, but she's also mm. kind of a sister figure in his life and in his world. And um, I, I definitely see that playing out between. Can do a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think this is another thing that makes this story very unique is it's set apart from the rest of the story of the Silmarils. It really has nothing to do with them. Yeah, I mean, I think the closest it gets to crossing over with that is the fall of Nargothrond, which, again, we know all these elf kingdoms are going to fall. And so, you know, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, we saw the fall of Hithlum and the invasion of the Easterlings. Um, with Turin, we get the fall of Nargothrond through him telling them to abandon their secrecy and go out to open war. And now Morgoth knows where they are. And so this is yet again one of the fall of the great elf kingdoms founded by Felagund. But overall, it has nothing to do with the Silmarils and like reclaiming them or anything no. like that, which is what this whole story has been about so far. It's also about a human where we've been mostly following the tales of elves. Yeah, and Baron and Luthien we, is the first one that we right. really get Baron. Although I do think it's worth noting Baron was originally an elf. Um, and the actual difference was Baron was a Noldor elf and Luthien was Sindar. So that's why Thingol was very like, fuck you. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so Turin was kind of the first mortal protagonist of these tales, um, which I think makes a lot of sense. And I, I just think all of, when we look at all of the things we've mentioned so far, that it's a unique ethical structure of like what's going on and the cause and effect and the destiny at play. Uh, is unique to this story. Um, the fact that it has nothing to do with the Silmarils relative to the rest of this collection of stories. And as you said, starting off, this is the most fleshed out story. Uh, and I, I, like I said, I, I think it's even the longest chapter, at least so far in the yeah, Silmarillion. I, I, I think I it is. I would definitely believe that. Um, that's all very significant. And, I don't know that what Tolkien that means. Tolkien chose to write that about yeah, this character. Right. He he clearly has a lot of care for this character in this story. So it is a little silly that people, uh, to hear that people dismiss this character is like, ah, what a jerk. <laughs> well, it's like, I don't think they dismiss the importance of him. I just think they just dismiss the um, nobility or heroism of Turin. Yeah. Which I think is is definitely there. But another thing I wanted to say, though, about, like, how this fits into the larger structure, I think it's important to keep in mind, all of this is just one long torture episode for Hurin. Oh, yeah. Uh, Morgoth is just trying to break Hurin's will. Yeah. So he will reveal where Turgon and Gondolin are. Um, so, of course, all of this is building up to the fall of Gondolin. Yeah. Um, most of this book has been. And... Um, this is just kind of more of that, but being played out through Hurin's son. And like, keep in mind, all of this Hurin is watching. He's watching right. it all unfold. And not only that, he's watching a distorted version of it through Morgoth's eyes. So Morgoth is always trying to show elves in a negative light to Hurin. And um, the wrongs of his house being uh, amplified. So, um, yeah, it's it's really terrible for Turin because this isn't even about him. Yeah. Um, yeah. He is just the, he just was born the son of the mightiest elf friend of those days. Yeah. Let's talk about the specifics of Turin's actions though. Yeah. Um, and kind of like <laughs> what he does 
fine and what he does not so great you know yeah the, and maybe like some reasoning is why he made this decision to yeah do this. um so i think it's pretty funny that he like just decides to be like an outlaw he's like well i fucked up once so now i'm just gonna run around and and kind of fuck shit up right yeah i love it and I, <laughs> <laughs> it's maybe not explicitly stated but and maybe this is just my uh uh inner tier and apologist but his refusal to go back to Doriath and uh, embracing the outlaw lifestyle, I like to think that this is mostly due to guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, was it, uh, I think Seros was the uh, elf that he killed. Um, kind of deserved it. But I still feel like Turin feels guilty. He's like, yeah. I killed one of someone in Thingol's court. Why should I deserve forgiveness? Which I, I love that. I love a character that's like, I don't deserve forgiveness, so I am going to just, like, totally commit myself to whatever I need to do to get by. Yeah, and and we're presented with this decision to stay in the forests as an outlaw. We're we're given the first of many, like, point of no returns in this story where, like, if he stayed in Doriath, he would have been joined by his mother and his sister pretty, you know, like, relatively... Well, oh, maybe, no, he maybe not, have. because yeah. he had to go to Nargothron and become the Black Sword. <laughs> That's so true. he did have to leave for them to get there. So it's like either Turin could have been there or his mom and his sister, but they couldn't both be Let there me just, together. We'll delete that. I like that. Like I think that? that's a good point. Okay. Um, yeah, that's totally true. So maybe this isn't a point of no return. Maybe it's just all fate. And that's something that we see him running from a lot. He he changes his name tons of times like he tries to change his identity run from this fate that is decreed for him yeah and and um it gets to the point where gwendor is like hey man it's not your name it's you it's you like yeah you're the drama (laughs) (laughs) yeah um exactly and well that's another reason why i think this is one of tolkien's like best stories is it really draws into uh that whole fate versus free will totally and like how much of this is Turin's own bad decisions and his own pride and how much of this is just this uh, curse of Morgoth, which, by the way, was the alternate title for the children of Turin was the curse of Morgoth. Mm. Um, uh, so Tolkien that's probably really, a better title. <laughs> Tolkien really wanted to draw, you know, make it clear that, you know, this environment that Turin is living in is being set up by Morgoth. Yeah, that's what the curse is, is his surroundings are influencing him to make these poor decisions. Totally. And so, I don't know, I've always kind of arrived at the conclusion that um, the curse of Morgoth is mostly to blame, but it wouldn't have been as effective as it was if not for Turin's pride. Yeah, or in just his, like, shirking of fate and destiny, you yeah. know? It, it. I think it's one thing to stand proud and say like yes i've been cursed by morgoth but like that is because of my father's bravery and and defiance and like i stand here in doriath in defiance you know and and i mean he's trying to also live up to the name of his father um he's living in the shadow of his father exactly and and so uh but like if, if he just kind of stayed put i do wonder like how 
deep would the sorrow have been to to fall to? true but i mean i it makes me think of glaurung's words though like you were arrayed as a prince and your mother and sister go in rags if he stayed in doriath right that's what would have been the case that is true um so I, there's so many complexities to the yeah. story which i really appreciate um but one thing i really love again I, and i think this is i think tolkien almost gives us a living metaphor of how the curse works um where when Turin comes to Nargothrond, you know, he advocates for them to abandon their secrecy and go forth to open war. He creates this bridge across the river so that they can more uh, easily move their armies and um, their arms. And uh, Almo sends messengers to warn him. And there is this quote um, There's this quote that these messengers bring from Alma that says, cast the stones of your pride into the loud river that the creeping evil may not find the gate. Yeah. Um, Glaurung is really, Glaurung, the father of dragons, is really the worker of Morgoth's curse here. Yes. He's almost a physical representation yeah, of Morgoth's <laughs> curse. And I would then say the bridge of Nargothrond is a symbol of Turin's pride. Um, literally almost says cast the stones of your pride into the river so that this evil cannot find the gate. Right. Um, and I think that just really kind of works with the curse is if not for Turin's pride, that is the entryway. That is the bridgeway of the curse of Morgoth into his life. Yeah. Um, if he allowed, again, his other defining trait, pity, to win out more, it probably wouldn't have been as bad. So... You know, it's just, it's really a hard decision to come to, like, is he truly responsible or not? But I don't know. A lot of his decisions, I do think if I was in his position and I lived the life he lived, I might not have made any other different decisions than he did. Yeah. Which is, and, but obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, and the reader can tell this is a bad decision. This is going to be like a, a t like a terrible comparison, but um, his path of destruction sort of reminds me of um the joker film uh <laughs> okay. where it's like it starts off like kind of like self-defense and believable and and relatable to some extent um and accidental you know mm -hmm. and it goes and just like becomes more and more entrenched in darker emotions and right and the the worst parts of himself yeah no, totally. And honestly, I think I mean I think the the whole fall of Nargothrond is like the worst part of Turin's story, um, the most avoidable. I think he. Uh, I think the book Children of Hurin gives a lot more context to Turin. Actually, tells the people of Nargothrond, "Well, if you're so worried about the kingdom falling and the women and children, send them away so the warriors can fight." And then they're like, the elves are like, we won't be parted from our loved ones. And Turin's like, oh my God, you elves are insufferable. Yeah. And so he's just like, I've said all I need to say. If y'all won't be parted, if, if Nargothrond falls, then it's on, it's basically on y'all. Yeah. And I've never been a fan of the people of Nargothrond since they abandoned <laughs> Felagund. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're very fickle. Exactly. So I don't know. I think Turin gives enough reasonings for, he's just like, let the warriors fight and let the others flee. Um. I don't see the problem there. But he does a lot of cool things um, while he's out wandering. Um, he he does make it possible for his mother and sister to escape. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, but then as soon as they find out who he was, they they, they leave Thingol's kingdom, much like Turin did, yeah. even though they should have just stayed there. Right. And then everything goes wrong as soon yeah. as they leave Doriath. Exactly. Um, and so you see that uh, that pride and stubbornness is not just Turin, it is also his mom and his sister. Yeah. Let's talk about his companions. Let's... Um, Everyone wants to talk about how awesome Legolas is as this great bowman of Middle Earth. Uh, uh, you're going to have to put some respect on Belleg's strongbow. Um, it's literally in his name. I know. It's like, I feel like Peter Jackson tried to make Legolas more like Belleg. And uh, especially Belleg and Turin more like Aragorn and Legolas, this bromance. Yeah. That doesn't exist in Lord of the Rings. Let me just, you know, this is another moment where I just have to take a... a, a a moment to point out the kind of non-heteronormative structure of Turin's relationships. Uh, his relationship with Beleg is definitely the thing that gets the most like airtime. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as like the descriptions of their, their intimate friendship and uh, compared to like the women in the story who he has disastrous relationships with. Yeah. Um, this is like his one successful relationship, except that he kills Beleg. Yeah. And I mean, I think next to uh, like Frodo and Sam and maybe Legolas and Gimli, they have probably one of the most uh, speculated about relationships and probably only less so because it's the Silmarillion and not the Lord of the Rings, which is much more popular. Yeah. Tolkien has um, this internal trope as well uh, within the legendarium that I think is really great uh, where one guy is fiery and wild and literally on a ledge like the entire time we know him um, and is, is rash and like ready to take action. Yeah. Uh, and then his bestie is his keeper who's like there to be like, Hey, like maybe don't like, maybe you should come home. Maybe everything's going to be okay. Maybe I should kiss your hands and, and we can just, I'll make you some rabbit stew. Like, how about you call him the fuck down? Who are you referring to? <laughs> like, <laughs> and, um, um, I think it's hilarious. And like, we get the most, um, kind of cooled down version of this with Frodo and Sam. Frodo is not nearly as wild um but he's pretty um you know he takes on this hopeless quest yeah and he's pretty fucked up and by sam is it. just like i'm not doing that but i am going to protect you yeah exactly. Um, a much more manageable kind of uh quest yeah and it reminds me also of mathros and um Fingon. Fingon. yeah and uh I, I think we just see this time and time again crop up between mm -hmm. male characters in yeah tolkien's work I think, again, if you look at the, the poem, the Lay of the Children of Hurin, which, like the Lay of Lathian, is unfinished, there there are some pretty sus moments um, with <laughs> Turin and Beleg. Uh, I think there's one line where it says, like, he kissed him kindly. Um, when he kills Turin, he, like, kisses him on the mouth. You know, I, I, th like... I think Aragorn and Boromir share a very intimate, like, Boromir's death moment is very intimate. But, you know, Aragorn just, he kisses him on the forehead. Um, as you do when someone is uh, in these epics when they die. It's just um, funny. But Turin and Beleg were, uh, they were brothers in arms. They were very, very close. Well, and when he kills Beleg, that that's a moment of no return where it's just like, that's pretty fucked up, dude. Like, you yeah. fucked it up. And uh, I mean, that moment basically haunts him and seals his very particular fate. 
I mean, yeah, it's like, imagine if uh, Frodo killed Sam and when they were in Mordor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Instead of, like, telling him in the movies, like, go home, Sam, he right. just, like, oh, you stole the Limbus bread? Like, I'm going to run you through a sting. Right. <laughs> you know? And then he's like, what did I do? Um, oh, yeah, it's it's terrible, but... Um, oh, and I, I love how his, the sword of Beleg is the sword that Turin kills himself yeah. with. Yeah. And he's like, to avenge my master Beleg. Dude, that um, sword is the best character in the whole story. <laughs> that sword's like, I'll gladly drink your blood and yeah. I'll take this as payment. Um, sword, of course, made by Ale. Yeah. I just have one more thing um, that I thought was, was unique mm-hmm. about this character is it seems like he's in a lot of situations where he ingratiates himself to the people he's traveling with or around like he's he's quick to leadership right. people are glad to listen to him but people you, actually love him yeah but often it's at the cost of their perspective on on someone else so totally he he comes into the outlaws he displaces the leader of the outlaws he actually kills him uh, he comes to Nargothrond he displaces Gwyndor in the hearts of the people and his own uh, betrothed uh, and then he comes to the woodmen of Brethel and they stop listening to their leader, Brandir, and start listening to him. It's like he's kind of ousting these people who have previously held respectable positions. And, and those people aren't bad people either. Like, I think of Gwendor. Yeah. I think of Gwendor, like, oh. a lot. Gwyndor and Brandir are, I think, some of just the most innocent people. Where it's like they've, like, gone through some shit and don't deserve the treatment they receive after one reason being that we were being told all of these the royal house of the noldor now i think it's important to keep in mind all of these houses have their own followings of people and lords of their houses it's not just this family drama and i think gwendor kind of shows us that that he's this lord of nargothrond he's not related to finway at all no but yeah we see it the battle of unnumbered tears his brother is brought out and they mutilate his body in front of him and he rashly charges forward and suffers for it. And so all these years later, he has helped rescue this mortal who turns out to be a very rash uh, person. And he's just like, he saw where that got himself. Yeah. So he's like speaking from experience. He's like, dude, like maybe chill out a little bit. And he's just like, no. And this leads to Gwyndor's death, uh, the death of Fendulas yeah. and their whole kingdom. Quick note about Fendulas, like... Uh, and Gwendor is just like, typically when a man in his dying breath gets his buddy to swear that he'll protect his love, mm-hmm. that happens. And this doesn't, ha- this oath is broken. Well, yeah, Glauron convinces him, uh, your mom and your sister need you more than she does, which is not true not at all. Not true at all. Uh, they are actually fine. Um, and so he abandons her to be like pinned to a tree with a spear. Um, and again, when any person in Tolkien's world foretells something, it normally comes true. And he says, if you fail to find her, your doom will not fail to find you. Um, he could have lived happily ever after with Finduelas. But she felt too much like a sister to him. Exactly. So he fell in love with his actual (laughs) sister. But no, it's like, and we'll see more um, with his cousin Tuor. We'll compare and contrast the characters more in the Fall of Gondolin episode. Um, But through Tuor, that's where all this bloodline passes down all the way to Aragorn. And I think Turin is the ultimate what if. If he was with Fendulas, 
Like, the bloodline could have passed through them. Like, Turin could have been his, like, legendary ancestor. Right. But instead it wasn't because, like, nothing went right in that story. Yeah. Um, and there's also just this theme in Tolkien's world of the inheritance passing to the younger heir as opposed to the elder. We got Manwe and Melkor. Melkor was the eldest. Who is the king of Arda, though? Manwe. We see this even with the dwarves. Uh, Thorin is the heir to Durin being the king under their mountain. Does he get to enjoy that? No, no he's killed. His younger cousin Dine becomes right. the, uh, um, the heir and the king under the mountain. And coming down to Boromir and Faramir. Yep. Boromir was sent to the fellowship, not Faramir. And he falls and Faramir inherits the stewardship, not yep. Boromir. And I think the way Boromir and Faramir are foils for each other is the closest analog to Turin and Tuor. And so we'll talk about that more in The Fall of Gondolin. I feel like there's not much to say about Neonor. At least not in this version. Yeah, she's pretty headstrong. Um, In the books, they do go a little bit more into when she faces Glaurung. She's got some defiance in her. Um, She kind of talks smack right back to Glaurung before he curses her. I do like the fact that she disguises herself as one of Thingol's soldiers to go um, with her mom. It reminds me a lot of Eowyn. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's 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 so sad because out of all these relationships Turin's been in, honestly, his relationship with his sister is the most non-toxic. Right. <laughs> he sees like this naked woman in the woods and he like, he like clothes her and he's like, it's okay. You don't need to speak right now. It's... And, and he respects her wishes, and um, they actually have a good relationship. And so, again, they could have just lived happily ever after if they didn't know the truth. Right. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's pretty pretty terrible the way it all shakes out. Yep. But I think that about wraps it up for this week. Next week? Oh! We are getting really close to the end. Um, next week, we're, we're going to... Do what we did this past time, where we're going to split what we originally had on our reading schedule, and I just need to go on the website and change it uh, to reflect what actually happened. But um, So next week we'll be covering chapter 22 of The Ruin of Doriath through chapter 24, The Voyage of Eärendil. And yeah, we're going to pick up with, uh, pick right back up with Hurin, and what all this mental torture has done to him and how this brings us to the conclusion of the Silmarillion. After that, the week following that, we'll talk a little more about the second age. Yeah. So we'll have a little bit of break and then we'll just kind of be reacting to each episode weekly. Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts or follow us on Twitter at half as well pod. Or you can check us out at halfaswellpodcast.com where we have our read-along schedule. I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As As Well. Well.